Thank you for sharing with us, David. What a great truth, the fact that we have a God who loves us more than anything else. We did celebrate Valentine's Day this past week, and as a part of that, I'm sure each of you husbands did what you were supposed to, and you made your wife feel special. I assume that the wife did as well, but at the same time, uh, really the greatest love we'll ever experience is not between a husband and a wife. It is between us and our God. Now, he does refer to us as his bride, and in that aspect, it is very similar, but the truth is his love is greater than anything we could ever imagine. So today we celebrate that. Hey, this past Sunday, I wasn't able to be with you uh, as I was attending the funeral of a young man who had lived with us uh, for a little while while we were up in uh, uh, Delaware. Uh, the funeral was actually up in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is not that far, fortunately. He had lived with our family for a few months and actually had been a part of our ministry for about five years. Uh, he was one of those guys who he just had that magnetic personality. Everybody wanted to be with him. Uh, he was one of those guys who just had fun and people loved being around him. He was also very gifted and talented. His death was somewhat of a surprise in that uh, he was actually doing well. He had had an accident, fell, broke his neck. He was very athletic, which uh, really unusual, but he fell and broke his neck. And at the age of 49, he passed away. Uh, again, I told you he was very gifted. He's the one who taught my oldest son who plays the drums for us. Uh, he's the one who taught Andrew to play the drums many years ago. And uh, he was a, a very um, important part of our family. I will say that I think most of us sort of expect people to die at an old age. For example, if an individual is 99 years old and they pass away, we figure that at least they lived a full life. They didn't get cheated. But when someone dies at the age of 49, we are more, far more acutely reminded of the frailty of this life. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. None of us is guaranteed that we're going to live to 99. All the things that we have, all the things that we've worked for, all our dreams, they're suddenly snatched from us, often without even a notice. We've all likely heard the phrase, you can't take it with you. It's a realization that all the things that we've lived for in this life will not follow us into the next. Well, with that in mind, I wonder, what is the thing that you live for? What is it that brings you happiness or satisfaction? What will make your life complete? Because the reality is... At some point, all the things of this life will be gone. And what's going to matter is what's in eternity. I grew up in a video game generation. I can remember playing video games that kids today would refer to as retro, which basically means it was a long time ago. They were basic and the graphics were just plain horrible. But technology would improve. In fact, it seemed that Technology would, technology would improve so fast that almost every year we needed to upgrade. We needed to get a new gaming system. But every time we got another one, it was already another one that was coming out. And basically, we were never satisfied with what we had. There was always something more that we needed. Well, the truth is that a lot of the things of this world leave us longing for more. At times, maybe even Christianity can leave us longing for more. 
I will tell you, that's a very uncomfortable statement. So let me explain what I mean by that. Some approach the Christian faith with a type of agenda. We anticipate that life will be easy because we have Christ in our lives, that God will bless everything that we do, that bad things will not happen to me because Christ is in my life. And when we approach our faith with ideas that are not actually promised by God, disappointment is bound to set in. In addition, there are others like John Eldridge, who is an author, and he described his faith experience as being less than what he bargained for, even though these are things that the scriptures do clearly teach on. This is what he said. There's talk of freedom, an abundant life of peace, like a river, and joy unspeakable. But he says, we see precious little of it. John Eldridge's phrase See, precious little of it captures the thrust of what Jesus is teaching in John chapter 12. And today I want us to look specifically at that passage. As Jesus is speaking, he is talking to a people who wanted to follow God, but they couldn't hear or they couldn't see the truth of the kingdom. They didn't realize what was there. They were confused because they tried to relate to God by comprehending God's kingdom as if it were another earthly kingdom. But it's not. You see, what we have here is very different to what heaven will be like for us. God's kingdom is not the same. It's not just an upgrade on what we have here, but rather God has a promise for us of something far Greater. Look at it with me. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I will tell you, I will reference different things from the chapter, but I want to begin in verse 37. So John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37, we read this. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus's glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise for God. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Now within this passage, there are several lessons that I want us to catch today. And the first one is this, to experience the fullness of faith promised in the scriptures, we must recognize the reality of two different worlds. There is a declaration of two worlds. This passage, along with numerous others, declares that our lives are affected by two worlds. We possess a plural existence. 
Notice the other world concepts that are mentioned just in John chapter 12. Glorifying the Son of Man, losing life to find life. A voice from heaven, a human voice basically from God himself. Healthy eyes and ears that are blind and deaf. It doesn't make sense. Healthy eyes that are blind, healthy ears that are deaf to spiritual things and understanding hearts. We know how to comprehend things with our mind, but how do you understand with your heart? When Jesus was asked why he taught with parables, he said parables communicate spiritual truth that cannot be understood by those with a calloused heart. Those consumed with the things of this world will never see the truth of Christ's kingdom. Understand, there is a difference between the world which we seek and we long for, as opposed to the world that we currently live in. Peggy Noonan was the former correspondent with CBS News and also a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. And she offered this insightful observation. Listen to what she said. I think we have lost the old knowledge that happiness in this life is overrated. We have lost the sense of mystery about us, our purpose, our meaning, our role. Our ancestors believed in two worlds and understood this to be a solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short one. We are the first generation of man to actually expect to find happiness here on earth, and our search for it has caused such unhappiness. The reason? If you do not believe in another higher world, if you believe only in the flat material world around you, If you believe that this is your only chance at happiness, then when the world does not give you a good measure of its riches, you are not just disappointed, you are despairing. I want you to understand today there is nothing wrong with experiencing happiness in this life. But understand that if all you live for is happiness here, you will at some point be in despair. Because the happiness of this world will never, ever be enough. What we seek is a happiness that will fulfill us for all eternity. And God is faithful to provide that. Several years ago, a Time Magazine article attempted to explain the popularity of fantasy films like The Wizard of Oz or Star Wars or Harry Potter, The Lord of the Rings. Some suggested that stressed out Americans look for a brief escape from reality. But the primary reason suggested by the author was likely more accurate. These stories appeal to a deeper level of the heart, reminding us that there is something greater going on here than we realize. Dorothy awakens after the tornado and discovers that she's not in Kansas anymore. Luke Skywalker discovers that the force is something that affects everything in the universe. Frodo is introduced to a cosmic battle of good versus evil when he finds the ring, or actually the ring finds him. And in John chapter 12, we read that the Almighty God controls the universe 
to bring glory to his name. He is in control. Some hear and see this truth while others will dismiss the voice of God as nothing more than thunder from a storm as it's actually referenced in John chapter 12 verse 29. The point is that there is another world that is awaiting us. It is the world of heaven. Not only are there two worlds, the intensity of John 12 increases significantly as the story moves from the declaration of two worlds to the rejection of truth. I will tell you that what I'm about to share with you is perhaps the most important thing I will ever share with you from the pulpit. According to 2 Corinthians 4.4, we are told that Satan conceals the truth from unbelievers. It says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan is a powerful enemy, but the scripture also clearly states that individuals, listen to this, individuals choose to follow or reject Christ. Jesus exhorts us to walk while you have light so that the darkness will not overtake you. Believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Verse 37 emphasizes personal accountability for rejecting the truth by informing us that Jesus performed many miracles, but they refused to believe in him. Notice that the responsibility is on the individual. They refuse to believe in him. Satan conceals, but the individual must choose. But the most dramatic revelation of John 12 is that God will one day close the door of opportunity. Remember, Satan conceals. He tries to keep us from knowing the truth, but then we have the opportunity. We must choose to either accept or reject, to refuse or to receive. But eventually, God will close the door of opportunity. Verses 39 to 42 reveal another side of God's divine character. God is certainly loving and compassionate, but he is also holy and just. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus had already taught with the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 that no one could come to the Father except if the Spirit draws him to God. Now John reaches back to the prophet Isaiah to explain the danger of rejecting God's invitation. After hearing a voice from heaven and seeing miraculous signs, God closes the opportunity to receive Christ by blinding eyes and hardening hearts. This divine act of judgment prevents the rebellious soul from being converted and experiencing the healing power of God. I got to tell you, this is an ugly truth. But there is a day that will come that God will close the door of opportunity. Ray Stedman is one of the authors that I often uh, use in studying and preparation. This is how he addresses this particular passage. He said, Many people read this and misunderstand because it sounds as though it is God's fault that people don't believe. There is no sense in trying to explain it away. 
this passage does in fact say that God prevents people from believing, but it is not God's fault. They don't believe. The fact is, these people had an opportunity to believe. They were invited to believe. They were shown miracle after miracle, evidence after evidence. It is not that God arbitrarily chooses some to be saved and others to be damned. These people made a choice to reject the truth. And God simply seals and notarizes the choice they have already made. If you persist in refusing and rejecting the truth, you will eventually lose your ability to recognize the truth when it is right before your eyes. Know today that if you recognize that truth and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and challenging you, and you know that the belief is necessary today, it is not too late. But eventually, the door of opportunity will close. Respond to the Lord now while he is still open to you. The third thing that we gather from this passage is what I will refer to as a description of traps, things that get in our way that often keep us from believing and pursuing the Lord, knowing the reality of the spiritual kingdom and the possibility of missing what God invites us to receive. We must now consider the traps that often prevent us from receiving the truth. The first trap illustrated in the text in John 12 is a lack of instruction. The Greeks that are mentioned in verse 20 were seekers of the truth. And Andrew and Philip take them to see Jesus. In the case of these men, they realized that they needed something. They needed the truth of Christ. But realizing the need was not enough. They had to act on it. So they sought out an audience with Jesus. Often our blindness is the result of our lack of training or instruction. We know we need more, but we're content to stay where we are. But we must continue to grow in our faith in order to experience the fullness that is promised in following Christ. A second trap is the lure of this world. Jesus consistently taught that this world can seduce you to the extent that you miss the greater world of his kingdom. He says in verse 25, the one who loves his life must first lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In the parable of the sower, Jesus warned of the thorns of the world, consisting of worries of the age and the pleasures of wealth that choke out the the word of God. Oh, how I fear that even those within the church have been seduced by the pleasures of this world. We have become like Lot and his wife. They lived on the edge of Sodom. And when the time came for judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah, it was discovered that they apparently had become too attached to this world. It was too hard to let it go. But we cannot serve two masters. We cannot love both the God of heaven 
and the sin of this world. We must choose which one we will serve. I think probably the concern for me is that at times we have almost explained away. We have justified why our love for the world is somehow okay. But it's not. The truth is there may be some really good things in this world, but they cannot overtake our love for God. That has to be the number one thing in our lives. The third trap, which is the loss of identity, is the saddest and most severe. John makes a powerful and poignant statement in verse 42. Many believed, but did not confess Christ as Lord. Why? Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Why? Because they had lost their identity. We are created by God and for God. When we look to other people for satisfaction and praise to validate the things that are going on in our lives, we have lost our identity. Much of our frustration in life and in our faith is due to the fact that often we seek fulfillment from other people, from outside sources, instead of abiding in Christ who abides in us. How much peace is lost or joy forfeited because we are more concerned with the opinions of other people instead of promises from a loving Savior? How many people in the body of Christ When you get up in the morning, your first thought is often what others will think. How many people in the body of Christ, mid-conversation, will say things and their intent is to please those who are around them as opposed to pleasing our God? Far too many of us have lost our identity and we now look to something else or someone else to truly bring us peace. But Jesus Christ alone can bring us peace. One of the most recognized invitation hymns that the church has sung over the years is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. We often limit the message to the song of conversion. But listen to the words, not just as one who is lost, but perhaps today as a sincere follower who truly wants to make sense of the dark world in which we live. Listen to the words of this beautiful hymn. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting he passed, and we follow him there. Over us sin no more has dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As I close this morning, I am going to open up the altar. I don't know where your walk in Christ is today. 
But I would venture to say that there are likely three groups of people that are present in this room. Some have never surrendered to Jesus Christ. You've been uselessly trying to live life for yourself. At times, this has led to moments of euphoria. At other times, it has led to heartbreak and disappointment. Well, for you, you need to know today that there is something far greater that is worth living for. If you will place your trust in Jesus Christ today, you will find the fulfillment that you need. He will provide for you. And you will find a peace that passes all understanding. A second group of people would include those who are in the body of Christ, yet they have become focused on other things. Those traps that were mentioned, they have worked into our lives. They've settled for a lack of instruction. They've gone far enough in their faith. They've been seduced by the pleasures of this world. Or perhaps they've just been living for the approval of other people, thinking that somehow that would bring satisfaction. But you know that it doesn't. In your case, perhaps today is the day that you need to leave those traps behind. It's time for you to renew your faith with Christ. Like the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, you need to go back and do the things that you did at first. Go back to the Lord and allow his spirit to once again have its rightful place in your life. Do you remember what that was like? Do you remember the joy and the peace, that overwhelming joy that literally would splash out of you onto other people? God offers that to us again. And finally, there are those who are likely here today and you are walking in the fullness of God's grace. And today you do have that peace because he's the one you're living for. And he is the one who satisfies your every need. I pray for you that that's where you will remain. I will venture to say this. It's not a judgment upon anybody who is here. But I would venture to say that there are more people in the first two groups than we would like to admit. For all of us, I want you to know that it is possible for us to walk fully in his grace and to experience the fullness of his salvation. But in order to do that, we must be willing to surrender everything to him. I'm going to ask, um, actually, uh, Margie's going to play. Actually, we're going to sing together. The song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, we're just going to sing the chorus. As we sing, if you feel as though you fit in group one or group two, I want you to know this altar is open, and I would love the opportunity to pray with you afterwards. I'm going to ask everyone, if you would, stand and join us together as we sing. Remember, the altar is open. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his Sing that one more time with us. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
Father, as we come before you today, we celebrate your grace. We confess that at times we have lived without it. We know that the, the grace has always been extended to us, but for some reason, we thought we didn't need it. But we're grateful today for your grace that has been extended to us. But if there be one today that does not know you, we fear the day when you close that door of opportunity. When salvation is something that is no longer offered to us. When our hearts have become so hard that we can no longer hear the voice of God. Lord, I pray right now that in this moment that we would experience true surrender. That we would never have to worry about our hearts becoming hardened because we are surrendered to you today. Lord, I pray for forgiveness of sins. I pray that as we confess our sins to you, that you would be faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, never to hold those sins against us again. Lord, I pray that you would bring not only the forgiveness of sins, but the power to live a free and victorious life. Lord, I pray for those who perhaps today we have lived for the wrong things. We've been sucked into the traps of this world, whether it be the seduction of all these things that we need and all of the approval of other people. Lord, I pray that whatever the traps may have been, Lord, I pray that in this moment we would no longer live for those things, but rather we would live for you and you alone. Lord, I pray that where there has been emptiness, you would fill us today with your spirit. And that from this moment forward, we would walk as those who do not just live for happiness here, but rather we live for eternity. Lord, may you be the one who takes control of our lives. Lord, I pray for each individual who perhaps today they are walking fully in the grace of your son. I pray right now that you would empower them to live that life for the rest of their lives. May they be a light and a witness to the rest of us so that we might one day all stand before you and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, may you have your way in us. And as you do, Lord, we will give you praise, honor, and glory. I pray for the one today who is at the altar, the ones who have come and said, I want to be fully surrendered to you. Lord, may you be honored. Lord, I pray that you would truly have all of them. And as they have come, Lord, fill them with your spirit. We will give you praise for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. As our closing today, let's sing together uh, one more time, just one time through the course. Turn your eyes upon Jesus.
Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.